Hello and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast. This week we're reading Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Before we jump into the New Testament, there is some important information that we need to understand. The time span between Malachi and Matthew is approximately 400 years. This time period is known as the silent years. God, in his wisdom, ceased to speak to the nation of Israel as a whole. At least, this is what the world thinks. The Book of Mormon shows us that this was not the case on the American continent. The reason I bring this up is because this moment altered the entire world as we know it. For 4,000 years, since the time of Adam and Eve, millions or even billions have looked forward to the time when the Savior would be born. The whole purpose of the creation of this world was fulfilled in a small town of Bethlehem. This moment changed how we tell time, and we give tribute to God every time we write the date. No matter what a person's belief is about God and Jesus, they have to admit that our entire world today revolves around the creator of this universe and his sacrificial son. But let's consider the argument for just a second, because that's really all it merits. What if it was just by chance that Jesus was born in the right place at the right time? That it was just by chance that he was a great teacher and a threat to the regime of that day? What are the odds? We have an entire book that we just studied all last year that predicted and prophesied of the coming of the Messiah. Nearly every prophet in detail described what it would be like when he comes to this mortal sphere. Some scholars believe that there were over 330 prophecies about Jesus, some giving extremely detailed information about his life thousands of years before his birth. In 1944, Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks. It has had several revisions since then, and it is terribly difficult to find a copy of it. But Professor Stoner was a mathematician and chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College until 1953 when he was snatched up by Westmont College from 1953 to 1957. There, he was Professor Emeritus of Science. In this book, he and 600 of his students calculated the probability of someone fulfilling any single prophecy from the Bible, especially the Old Testament. In the beginning of this book, he literally proves with math and science that the Bible is true and written at the hand of God. This is what he says in the preface. Today, if our young people are properly taught in the church, there is no possible excuse for them to lose their faith in college, for everything that they study in the physical sciences will speak of the unerring truth of the Bible. If they will stop to consider, it will prove to them that God alone could have been the author of the Bible. But what I want to focus on today is the third section where they calculate the odds of someone fulfilling the prophecy of Christ. To begin, Stoner takes eight of the most well-known prophecies, such as the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that he would have a forerunner to prepare the way for him, that he would enter Jerusalem riding on the back of a colt, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and so on. If these estimates are considered fair, he says, one man and how many men the world over will fulfill all eight prophecies? The question can be answered by applying the principle of probability. We find that the chances that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. 
This is one with 17 zeros after it. Let us try to visualize this chance. If you mark one in 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Suppose we take 10 to the 17th power. We could take silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They would cover the entire state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars, stir the whole mass thoroughly over all the state, blindfold the man, and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that it is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man. From their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Now these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God, or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should be. In such a case, the prophets had just one chance in 10 to the 17th power of having them come true in any man. But they all came true in Christ. This means that the fulfillment of these eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of those prophecies to a definiteness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power by being absolute. He then goes on to calculate eight more prophecies for a total of 16. What are the odds of one man fulfilling 16 prophecies. That's 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Take this number of silver dollars. You can make these into a solid ball. You will have a great sphere with a center at the earth and extending all directions more than 30 times as far as the earth from the sun. If a train would have started from the earth at the time of the Declaration of Independence was signed and had traveled steadily towards the sun at a rate of 60 miles per hour, day and night, it would be about reaching its destination today. But remember that our ball of silver dollars extends 30 times that far in all directions. If you can imagine that marking one silver dollar and then thoroughly stirring it all in that great ball, blindfolding a man and telling him to pick one dollar and expect it to be the marked one, you have somewhat of a picture of how absolute the fulfillment of 16 prophecies referring to Jesus Christ proves both that he was the Son of God and that the Bible is inspired. Certainly God directed the writings of this word. He then goes further than that to consider 48 prophecies. The odds are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Silver dollars are too large to consider in this calculation, so he uses electrons, about the smallest object that is known in this world. He says that if you were to line up electrons in a straight line that is one inch long, you counted 250 electrons every minute, day and night, it would take you 19 million years to count just a one inch line of electrons. It is believed that the solar system is approximately 1.5 million light years in length. Now picture, if you can, the distance of 6 billion, with a B, light years. And you send someone out blindfolded to pick out one specific electron. In that span of space, the odds of him finding that one exact electron are 1 in 10 
to the 157th power. And that's just considering 48 prophecies. Our minds couldn't even fathom any number that would represent the odds of Jesus fulfilling 300 plus prophecies while here on this earth. Yet with all that proof, it doesn't mean a thing to us if we don't have a personal relationship with him who came to save. Our time is short, and I did want to point out one thing in regards to the scriptures we are studying this week. You may be asking yourself, why in the world would you start out the New Testament with the genealogy of Jesus? Isn't that stuff what we usually skip over when we come to in the scriptures? Well, I hope you don't, because there is a great lesson contained there. Consider the names of each individual and who they were in their life. Let me show you a few examples. It starts with Abraham. Abraham was a liar. He lied twice about being married to his wife, Sariah, in order to save his own life. Jacob was a deceiver. His name literally means in Hebrew, the deceiver. He tricked his brother out of his birthright, and he and his mother deceived his father, Isaac, into giving him Esau's blessing. Solomon was a womanizer. He had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. Ruth was a Moabite, a descendant of a people known for incest. David, <laughs> King David, has a laundry list of sins from adultery to murder. Rahab was also known as Rahab the harlot. And the list goes on and on. But what does it all mean? Typically, when someone recalls their lineage, they like to focus on the good ones that represent success and status in their life. It helps us feel as if we're important and that we come from a line of important people. It's in our blood. We also tend to leave out those that left a stain. We tuck them away in the back pages of our history. But here, it seems to emphasize the worst of the worst in Jesus's lineage. And I believe that is for a purpose. Some have a hard time picturing themselves in the family of Christ. They feel like a misfit or an outcast. I think all of us at some point in our lives feel or have felt like that. The message that we can pull from the opening verses of one of the greatest books of all time is that God and Jesus want all of us to be part of their family, flaws and all. We will study soon how the Sadducees and the Pharisees criticized Jesus for hanging out with sinners and publicans. Little did they know that that would define all of us from the beginning of time to the end of the world. We are all sinners that fall short from the glory of God. And the sooner we realize this, the sooner we can let go of pride that grips so many of us. I was speaking to a good friend of mine the other day who said to me, I just don't feel like I belong at church. She then went on to tell me all the reasons that she felt inadequate to be there. I tried to explain to her that the church was not a museum for the saints, but a hospital for the sick. And if you feel like you are not sick, well, that's the number one symptom of a bad case of pride. My grandpa always used to say to me when he saw I was coming down with a case of the prides, that the remedy was a big slice of humble pie, and he was always ready and willing to dish it up for me. The point I'm trying to make, and the same one that Matthew and Luke are making, is that we are all part of the family of Christ, no matter who we are, where we come from, or what we have done. 
He stands ready and willing to accept all of us for who we are and to show us what we are capable of becoming. I love the line from a modern Christian song that says, I saw the prodigal, and he saw the son. I saw the 99, and he saw the one. As we begin our study of the New Testament, might we remember how important these events are, how important he was in the history of the world, and how important he still is in our world today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.